Hello, and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and as and with me, as always, is my co-host, Rob Lamorgis. Hello, everybody. Uh, this is our fourth episode in our series exploring the movies that followed in the wake of George Lucas's Star Wars. And today's show is a bit of a departure, as we're going to be dis- discussing three movies that, while certainly influenced by Star Wars, weren't necessarily trying to copy that film. Those are Ridley Scott's Alien, Star Trek, the motion picture, and the James Bond film Moonraker. To be clear, none of these films are trying to imitate Star Wars in the way that something like Star Crash or even Battlestar Galactica was, but all three might not have been made, or at least would have been made quite differently if Star Wars hadn't kicked the door open for big-budget science fiction cinema. So let's begin by talking about a film that we eventually planned to do uh, a Get Me Another series for in its own right, Ridley Scott's Alien. Attention to the crew of the commercial vessel Nostromo. A word of warning. A word of warning. A word of warning. Alien. Coming this summer to a theater near you. In the early 1970s, while students at USC Film School, writer Dan O'Bannon and director John Carpenter made a low-budget sci-fi comedy called Dark Star, about a starship sent out to destroy unstable planets to further human colonization of the galaxy. Following this, O'Bannon conceived of the idea of doing Dark Star as a horror movie, with the basic concept being about an alien stalking a group of astronauts on a spaceship. Uh, the script, entitled Star Beast, was developed by Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shusett, and it was pitched around at various studios, usually with the hook of Jaws in Space. It eventually landed a production at a production company called Brandywine, who had a deal at 20th Century Fox, and despite the script going through numerous rewrites and a title change to Alien, there wasn't a whole lot of interest until Star Wars hit big in 1977. Ben is, O'Bannon is quoted as saying, they wanted to follow through on Star Wars and they wanted to follow through fast, and the only spaceship script they had sitting on their desk was Alien. Eventually, Fox and Brandywine tapped British director Ridley Scott, who had filmed a movie called The Duelist, to direct. Alien tells the story of the commercial mining vessel Nostromo, which is diverted on its journey back to Earth to investigate a possible extraterrestrial signal. They land on planet LV-426, where they find a massive, derelict alien spaceship. And one of the crew, while investigating what appears to be an egg, is attacked and has an alien creature attached to his face. Now, Rob, I think at the outset we should say, we're going to talk about spoilers. Um, you know, this is, it's hard to talk about some of these movies without getting into the realm of spoilers. That said, if you're out there listening and you have not seen Alien, put our show on pause, go watch Alien, and then come back and listen. We promise you will not be disappointed. But, but you know, if we want to say that at the outset because, you know, we're, we're going to talk about some of the things that happen in these movies. Rob, is that, not, is that not a reasonable thing? They should go watch Alien if they have not already. Absolutely. And I just wanted to clarify, you will not be disappointed in the movie Alien. You very well may be disappointed in us uh, when you come back. <laughs> so no promises. No promises. Um. They, uh, what happens, well now, we'll get into the realm of spoilers, one of the crew members who has, who's attacked by this, this creature, uh, Kane, is brought back aboard the ship, and eventually the creature detaches from his face, and everything seems fine as they're about to resume their journey home, and in one of the most famous scenes in film history, an alien which has been implanted in the crew member's chest bursts forth and escapes, and from that point, the alien grows in size and begins to hunt down the crew members. Rob, what are your thoughts on Alien? I love Alien. It's a masterpiece. This movie, uh, 
it had been a while since I've watched it. And it's one of those movies that even when you've seen it and then it has such a, a weight in uh, film history for at least the U.S. side of things. And I uh, so you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Aliens. Great is kind yeah. of what my thought <laughs> was. Yeah, yeah, of course. Classic. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and then it I watch is. it. It really is. And then I watch it and I'm blown away all over again. Yeah. Um, even no, as many times as I've seen this movie, I know what's coming around every corner, uh, sometimes metaphorically, sometimes literally. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't matter. This no. is just, it, it plays the audience like a fiddle. It is, it is one of those perfectly calibrated movies. It is, uh, I mean, just everything across the board is 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 masterpiece level work uh the tone the atmosphere the performances the story everything it is brilliant across the board um it stars tom skerritt sigourney weaver john hurt veronica cartwright harry dean stanton ian holm and yafet kodo and the acting in this movie is off the charts incredible all the little interactions between the cast i mean it's amazing that here you have this sci-fi horror film, and within it is a legit masterclass of naturalistic acting. It is so good. Yeah, and I, it's funny, for me at least personally, Sigourney Weaver, Yafet Kodo, Harry Dean Stanton, these are all people who I, I know and love oh, quite sure. a bit. I have to say, I forget how much I take Tom Skerritt for granted. Yeah. He is amazing in this movie as well. And he's one of those guys, just uh, kind of an unsung hero of of acting, I think, for me, because he's great in everything he does, including here. And he's in so many great movies that you just kind of forget because he always delivers. Yeah, Um, he's like Roy Scheider. You know, he's one of those guys you don't think about, but, you know, is always great. and, 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 you know, it's just... Uh, they're always they're always going to be good, and they're in so many terrific movies. Um, this movie is just... I mean, the production design on this movie is amazing. Uh, the production designer was Michael Seymour. Uh, the alien itself was created by uh, Swiss artist H.R. Giger. Um, I mean, it, it, and obviously this is not a movie that is trying to be Star Wars in the way that, again, as we said, some of the other films we've talked about in this series are really trying to to be Star Wars, but... What's different here is that this movie would have been made very differently, I think, had Star Wars not happened. Or quite possibly had never been made. I mean, yeah, it, may, it may have never been made, but if it had gotten made, it would have, I think it would have had a completely different tone and feel. Because it, it, what, what it really borrows from Star Wars is that lived-in universe, that lived-in sci-fi universe aesthetic that, that you didn't really see before. Absolutely. And as part of that, this takes it, I think, to much more of a 70s filmmaking degree than Star Wars did. One of the ways is, and I can't believe I'm going to say this, the dialogue recording and Mm -hmm. mix. Um, In Star Wars, visually the world is very, very lived in, but the audio is just super super clean right. and it's living in a world of amazing sound um no, spoiler alert george lucas is very big into sound sure um now and ben burt his with, sound guy is, you know is, is oh, you yeah, know is yeah. just is, is is a brilliant brilliant uh craftsman but aliens aesthetic is far different in that you can hear the room yeah. that the actors are in um and this feels much more like it was done on the recording side of things, it doesn't, to my ears at least, which are imperfect, it doesn't sound like added in in post so right. much. Maybe it was emphasized in the mix or whatever, but that it sounds like they may have had the boom back a little bit. And it's not it's not distracting, but it no. is noticeable if you listen for it. And it helps give that lived-in feel of um, this is real and therefore the danger and the terror feels more real. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's there's that whole opening sequence where uh, the crew are all the crew begin the movie in in suspended animation, and you're just moving through the the ship, and it's so amazing because what you get is these little little bits of motion. There's the drinking bird on the table. There's like pages of a book, kind of, and it's almost like you're moving through a haunted house until the computer snaps on. 
and starts to and then and then the 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 beginning the movie really kind of begins in earnest and it's it's really amazing uh, the Nostromo the, the ship that they're on the Nostromo is like an Imperial Star Destroyer crossed with the Bayway Refinery off the Jersey Turnpike. It's it, it, it's an incredible piece of production design. Um, it's funny it's, that you mention Haunted House, Chris. Both because... ships in this movie feel like Haunted Houses, both the Nostromo and the Derelict ship. Absolutely. But this and this one, uh, just... I definitely got a lot of 2001 vibes. Yes. Uh, especially in some of those shots that you're talking about. Some of the... There's a little bit of Close Encounters feel sometimes as well with kind of the wonder and awe of it all mm-hmm. that feels a little more heartfelt in that way uh, and less cold than Kubrick's uh, 2001. Yes. But it's funny in that I think... And look, Alien, it's its own thing. It's just one of those oh, things yeah. where you can see the influences... It's not copying 2001, but you can kind of feel the weight of that movie. But I, and again, I have no idea of what happened. I think you can feel the weight of what Alien did with that 2001 aesthetic. And as you were saying, applying it to the ship as a haunted house. I think you can feel a little bit of that in The Shining. Oh, sure. Uh, Not, you know, granted, I think that might have been shooting. But um, it's just funny to see that kind of aesthetic applied to horror uh first actually by by Ridley Scott in the you know having showing some influences and taking it in a different direction but then getting to see what Kubrick did taking his own style into, into the into horror a, realm a, a, a you know a, a, a more a more earthbound horror setting yeah absolutely uh, it's interesting to me that the two the first two films we're going to talk about today are very heavily influenced by 2001, perhaps more than Star Wars aesthetically. They really draw from that 2001 thing in terms of tone and style. Uh, both this film and, and Star Trek The Motion Picture are, are clearly operating downstream of 2001. And as you say, this is it feels like a horror version of that. Um, and there's certain thematic things in common too. I mean, first of all, the, the emphasis on the slowness and loneliness of space and space travel. Uh, is is very much apparent here, uh, and again to get where we said where well, this is going to be a, a spoiler uh, thing. The character of Ash, who is revealed late in the film to be an android, feels like a variation on Hal, you know, from two thousand one, a machine that turns murderous in order to carry out its programming. It's like if you if you put Hal into a humanoid body, you would come up with with Ash or something like him. Yes, and. Even Goldsmith's score for uh, Alien, mm-hmm. it's it doesn't sound, again, it's not taking licks from the 2001 score, but the way he uses those kind of tense strings where you're having this tension that's just unresolved and it will keep going, which is kind of keeping your emotions up high and yeah. never releasing them is at least reminiscent of a technique in 2001. Although I would also say there's a little bit of Bernard Herrmann's vertigo in the score sure. as well. Absolutely. But also, I love that score and I hear it everywhere. So it might be a, a case of me just seeing human faces in light sockets. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's amazing that Jerry Goldsmith did both Alien and Star Trek The Motion Picture in the same year. And they're very different scores and they're both amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's, is that the composer equivalent of James Cameron writing um what uh what was it like rambo rambo first, first blood, blood part two uh aliens and what was the the yeah, the, the, yeah it's 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 an incredible jerry goldsmith is incredible i mean you know obviously john williams is incredible but you know uh, i think jerry goldsmith doesn't get as quite as much attention as as he's due for some of the amazing scores that he 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 produced uh, over the course of his career uh you know, going back to that that incredible sort of discordant Planet of the Apes um, uh, score that that he did. I rewatched this for the podcast late at night with the lights out, and I actually had my headphones on, <laughs> and I just having that score wash over me, and having that kind of you know almost like those mythic long shots, and you're just and then close up as well in the uh, inside the ship, and you're just kind of like floating around for a a large chunk of the first half of this movie all as a very disembodied witness 
it just was a wonderful experience. <laughs> did you did you have to turn the lights on after the movie? Whenever I watch a scary movie and it's dark and it really gets to me. Not every not every scary movie really gets to me, but occasionally you get one that gets under your skin. I immediately turn all the lights on in the house as 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 a kind of antidote to that. You know, it's like oh, oh boy. Um, this, this film is really interesting because, as, as uh, I mean, in a lot of ways. But one aspect of this film that's really interesting is just how Star Wars was a post, you know, Hollywood new wave take on the sci-fi adventure serial. This movie feels like a post Hollywood new wave take on a '50s sci-fi horror movie. It is, it is a descendant of movies like The Thing from Another World and Forbidden Planet. It has. Yeah, those elements, and it feels like it's this is the movie made by people who watched movies like uh, movies like Thing from Another World and Forbidden Planet as they as they grew up and said, "Oh, I want to make a movie like that." And it feels like the acorn of it is, "Hey, let's do a really scary version of that." And of course, John Carpenter would make the Thing a few years later, which yeah, the remake of the Thing a few years later, which is also kind of that very much a, a reinvention of of that type of film. Yeah, what what I find fun about that is uh, what a few years earlier you get Kaufman's uh, remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah, which feels very much like a Watergate version of Absolutely. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Absolutely, this this movie, whether it was intended to or not, very much feels like the Vietnam War movie version. Yeah, of of the fifty sci fi because you just have so much. Um, cynicism here with you're being sent on a mission for one reason turns out that there's a hidden reason that you didn't know about the people who sent you are lying to you and they're putting your life in danger and what does any of it matter uh it whether or not i think that was probably just in the zeitgeist i honestly i did i don't know if that was an intention at all but it's hard to escape those um those lines in this movie no, and, 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 and some of the characters, in particular, you know, Tom Skerritt's uh, captain uh, and, and Harry Dean Stanton and Yafat Koto all feel like they could have been veteran. They all feel like, oh, they could have come out of the war and this was their post-war job. They, they have, they carry with them that kind of weariness to them. It's, uh, again, and just the, the interactions between them, between these characters is fantastic it is a master class um also fantastic is the alien design itself oh my goodness i mean it is one of the best most otherworldly alien designs in movie history it feels instantly real and it is horrifying it is just an amazing piece of work this to me also the one way it's like star wars is in how streamlined and efficient the story is yes there's uh again there's no fat in this movie even for one that in the first half one could say is slower paced than many action movies or many horror movies frankly sure um it's almost like uh i think of it as kind of like the hemingway of uh science fiction (laughs) horror movies uh and it its simplicity is in it doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles oddly enough and it helps reach that transcendent level one of the ways just one little example of that, of what i'm talking about when the crew go on to uh the the surface where they encounter the uh the alien eggs that leads to uh the face hugger happening yep um we find john hurd or john hurd's character is there he finds the eggs we get uh and then it cuts away. You mm-hmm. you don't know what happened. And you completely cut out the entire part where the face hugger shoots out and gets, you know, crashes through his helmet right. and, and gets onto him. And instead, you just cut straight to, uh, I believe, Ripley uh, opening uh, the ship up so that a couple of guys come in dragging John Hurt with them. Yeah. And it's like, what happened? What happened? Um, it creates such great suspense in that. And she initially won't and, let know. them on, which is such a great, that's, it, it, it's interesting because this movie does not tell you in advance who the, the, the survivor is going to be. 
the only thing that I mean, obviously, we all know because Sigourney Weaver starred in four Alien movies uh, in total. We all know the character of Ripley. But if you were watching this in 1979, you would go into this movie having no idea who is the one coming out of this alive. Uh, and it's only I think that bit with her at the beginning where she she stands up to to her captain and and says, well, no, we can't let this thing on. We we don't know what it is. There's quarantine protocol. It kind of, I think, maybe starts to, oh, this is the person we're going to follow. What's interesting is they give, at the moment, we don't know Ash's true identity. And Ash yeah. is the one who lets them on the ship, uh, which at the moment, in a uh, for a uh, audience who's not seen it before, plays like Ash is more compassionate and Ripley is not, which traditionally might be the setup for her character getting it first and the more compassionate one being able to survive. Uh, right. But obviously this diverges from that quite a bit. Yeah, it's uh, the word Lovecraftian gets thrown around a lot these days, usually to mean anything with tentacles like, oh, my fried calamari is so Lovecraftian. But really, this film is because it's got this sense of unknowable cosmic horror that we live in a fragile existence that is in, in a different universe and it's not even like someone's out to get these characters. The alien is just, it's its like the shark in Jaws. It's just doing what it does. It's not even, there's no, there's no morality to this. It's not, we're not fighting the evil empire or, or, or anything like that. It's just, this is the way the universe works and you are food. And, you know, that I think I would agree with 100%. It's one of the ways in which this feels very 70s to me or 70s Hollywood to me in that kind of feeling of um, just almost, you know, hopelessness in the face yeah. of a vast, insurmountable um, terror. Which is one of the differences between this movie and its its uh, its successor, Aliens, which is also an amazing movie and and sort of an I I think an ideal sequel to this movie because it doesn't try to just repeat the same thing. It's real interesting how Aliens works, and that's a it's another show. But that film is very eighties. It is is James Cameron's. It's full action post Vietnam. You know, uh, it, it it's. It's a really interesting. There, they are sort of two really interesting, very different uh, films. You know, they are they were not just trying to to build a. You know, let's do the same thing again. Uh, it's 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 and again at some point we'll talk about aliens because uh, it, it deserves in its own right. Uh, but this film is is so is so spare and so hopeless, um, and and just fantastic. It's. Um, you know, and and again, it, it's it's not trying to be Star Wars, but it, it definitely is existing. The world of Alien was made possible by the success of Star Wars. Um, you wouldn't quite have Alien, I think, as as we understand, as we know it, if not for the the success of you know, if not for big budget science fiction being a a viable you know a viable commercial prospect. Now, I know some of you might think that this sounds a little bit like a bummer and it is a horror movie but if you were looking more for the vastness of space inspiring awe and hope instead of terror there might be something else that's up your alley and that's a perfect segue uh into uh talking about our second movie which uh is uh very similar to alien in some ways but very different in others star trek the motion picture Human adventure is just beginning. William Shatner. Take us out. Is Captain James T. Kirk. Leonard Nimoy is Mr. Spock. DeForest Kelly is Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy. James Doohan is Lieutenant Commander Montgomery Scott. George Takei is Lieutenant Commander Sulu. Majel Barrett is Dr. Christine Chapel. Walter Koenig is Lieutenant Pavel Chekhov. 
Michelle Nichols is Lieutenant Commander Uhura. Stephen Collins is Commander Willard Decker. Persis Kambata is Lieutenant Ilya. Star Trek, the motion picture. Gene Roddenberry's production of a Robert Wise film. Obviously, the history of Gene Roddenberry's seminal science fiction series goes back more than a decade before Star Wars was even released. Produced by Desilu and later Paramount Television, it ran on NBC from 1966 to 1969 and was canceled after three seasons. What's really interesting is the story of Star Trek gets started immediately after its cancellation. It goes into syndication and almost overnight starts to grow in popularity. In large part because it was, able, it was able to find an audience that it never found during its primetime network run. You have to remember, this was before the age of even VCRs, so if you wanted to watch a show, you had to be tuned in when it aired. And, you know, from very early, there is talk of some kind of Star Trek revival. There's an animated series that airs on NBC on Saturday mornings from 1973 to 74 from our friends at Filmation, and there were plans afoot for a Star Trek movie as early as 1975, but the original intention was to make a low-budget film, uh, because at that point, science fiction wasn't considered a good box office bet. Several ideas were pitched, several scripts were written, some by Gene Roddenberry as well as others. One of those scripts from Roddenberry himself was entitled The God Thing and involved Kirk reuniting the crew of the Enterprise to intercept an alien entity on its way to Earth. The alien claimed to be God and was sending a probe aboard the Enterprise which took various forms including that of Jesus. Uh, reportedly, this script has Kirk fighting Jesus on the bridge of the Enterprise and gee, I would, I would pay money to see that. Um, and, and, but aspects of the script would have, obviously Paramount was not going to make that movie, but aspects of that script would make their way into Star Trek The Motion Picture. Um, eventually, in, in 1976, uh, the, the writers of Don't Look Now, Chris Bryan and Alan Scott, developed a story idea from, called Planet of the Titans. Philip Kaufman was hired to direct, and it seemed like everything was moving along until March of, of 1977, when... Bryant and Allen deliver the first draft of the script, and it's rejected by Paramount. Kaufman took another pass at it, but on May 8, 1977, the project was canceled. Three weeks before Star Wars opens at the U.S. box office. While all this is going on, Paramount was putting together plans for a fourth television network. And it was decided that a new Star Trek series to, was to be the cornerstone of that network. So in June 1977, Star Trek Phase Two is announced. And over the course of the next few months, scripts are written, costumes are designed, sets built, and it looks like it's a go until two things happen. One, plans for the fourth, fourth network fall apart. And two, Star Wars and later Close Encounters prove that big-budget science fiction could be big at the box office. By fall of 1977, there's already talk of turning the two-hour pilot movie, In Thy Image, into a feature film, and by year-end, Phase 2 is officially cancelled and work on Star Trek The Motion Picture begins. Robert Wise, director of The Day the Earth Stood Still and The Andromeda Strain, as well as The Sound of Music, was hired to direct. And all of the sets and costumes that had been made for Phase 1 were all scrapped in favor of a complete redesign that would benefit from a big-screen budget. Um... You know, for years, Star Trek The Motion Picture was considered sort of a lesser entry in the Star Trek canon because it, it's, it's a little slower. I don't think that at all. I think this is a terrific movie. I, 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 it's a movie I've grown to love over time. Um, it, it, you know, it's, it's not like Rafa Khan, which is sort of an instantly fall in love with, but it, it's really got something. Yeah, I'd agree. Uh, when I was younger... Spoiler alert, I, it was one of my uh, lesser uh, Star Trek movies, personally. Not that I didn't watch it. Sure. But I think some of that has to do, you know, oftentimes I think this is described as a feature-length version of an, a Star Trek episode. And I think oftentimes people say that to mean it in a negative way. I think I, that's a positive. Yeah, I, I do too. It's because it's such a trippy episode and it gets at the heart of what I love Star Trek to explore. Yeah. Just kind of about these, uh, the mysteries of life and these big, deep human emotions. 
Yes. Um, and look, when it goes when it goes more full kind of action movie with Wrath of Khan, I love that too. I think those are two modes of Star Trek though that are often at odds in individual Star Trek movies. Here, at least they've picked the path, and yeah. I think uh, they go down it in a way that I just uh, really love. And and this movie and Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, to me, are a lot like the two original Star Trek pilots, The Cage and Where No Man Has Gone Before. One is a more intellectual endeavor, uh, but also of deep feeling, and the other is, is, a, is a meditation on friendship and with a little bit of you know, action thrown in. Um, Star Trek The Motion Picture tells the story of Captain Kirk and the crew of the Starship Enterprise reuniting to confront the threat posed by an enormous space vessel, V'ger, which wields incredible destructive power and is headed directly for Earth. Over the course of the film, we learn that V'ger is actually a lost NASA probe, Voyager 6, which after disappearing into a black hole is found by a planet inhabited by living machines. Recognizing their own kind, they build the V'ger vessel in order for Voyager 6 to complete its programming of collect all data possible and return that information to its creator. And it's interesting, the story for Star Trek The Motion Picture was one that Gene Roddenberry was kind of in the process of telling through the 70s. Because the, the, the original, there was an episode of the, of the original series called The Changeling written by John Meredith Lucas, which told the story of an Earth probe called Nomad, which had been damaged in deep space and found its way back, uh, found its way to the Enterprise and mistakenly believed that Captain Kirk was its creator. And that, I feel like, is the acorn for this story. Uh, it was further expanded upon in a, a, a story called Robots Return, which was a, a proposed episode for Gene Roddenberry's Genesis 2 series, which never got past the pilot stage, and involved a NASA probe which had merged with an alien technology and now had returned to Earth looking its for, for its creator. So it's very much, you know, it, you, you from there you go to In Thy Image, which was the pilot for Phase 2, which then became Star Trek The Motion Picture. So this was a, this was an, a concept that Gene Roddenberry was developing over the course, you know, from the late 60s. Um, and it's, it's the, this movie is, I think, the most pure Gene Roddenberry Star Trek that you'll find. I think it is it is the moment where Gene Roddenberry had the most control and the most resources and he would never quite have that same level of control again. Um I I just I think it's it's fascinating and it's epic and it deals with with sort of the core questions of who we are and where are we going. It, it's it's a it's a movie of big ideas. Yes, and my th- some of my favorite Star Treks, and if you had to press me, I would say I would, you know, most often want the series and the, you know, Star Trek to operate in this realm is Star Trek without a villain yeah. is usually my favorite because that's when it can get at a lot of the, the core stuff that I love about it. Yeah. Um, again, I, look, I, I love Khan, we all love, love Khan. Borg. Yeah. You know, there, there's absolutely. You know, there's some great Klingon stuff, um, obviously, but I, I really, really love Trek when there's no villain, and that is this movie. Yeah. I also, you know, when you're flip flopping between the idea of is it going to be calling itself God, mm-hmm. or is it going to be looking for God? Right. I do think that the looking for God is just a little bit more interesting it because of the position it puts our our characters in where uh and again spoiler alert we're we're just going all out mm-hmm. this is in some ways uh also a little bit of a frankenstein story because you know yeah you know i never thought of it that way but it is yeah yeah vijer is looking for god and we are god and we don't have the answers and really are just not going to meet those expectations. Yeah. And that to me is just so fascinating uh, because it speaks to the issues of, you know, why is there a universe? Yeah. How did it happen? You know, it is whatever is responsible for the universe happening, even if we could find that entity would it would even know that it created us? Would it even know? I mean, and and yeah. would it have any more answers than we do? Um, you know, it's uh, wow. I mean, it's it. 
like I said, a movie of big ideas. And I hadn't thought of it quite in that, that context, but I think I, I will now. Uh, it's... It's great. Um, this movie is another like like Alien. This movie draws a lot from two thousand one, A Space Odyssey. It it is, um, you know, it, it it the special effects were done by Douglas Trumbull. The you know, which it, I feel like are in a lot of ways an, an expansion and extension of what he did uh, with two thousand one. It it doesn't follow the Star Wars aesthetic in terms of the speed of things. Uh, it's definitely more in the two thousand one vein. Where Star Wars, I think, made its mark is in terms of the level of production. You wouldn't have had a, a Star Trek movie at this level. Uh, and, and Star Trek, the motion picture, um, it, it really is, you know, beyond kicking off a very successful Star Trek movie series, this film also contains the DNA of Star Trek The Next Generation which opened the door for subsequent series. Like, for example, uh, Decker and Ilea are clearly sort of a prototypes for Riker and Troy on Next Generation. This, this movie, Star Trek The Motion Picture, is the Rosetta Stone of Star Trek. Like, if you really want to understand where Star Trek was going to go in the, in the decade since, I think Star Trek The Motion Picture is the place to, to start. Yeah, and those 2001... Uh similarities this movie opens with black screen Mm -hmm. and orchestral overture yes which i think is actually smart on their part because it is signaling to the audience that this is not going to be a you know whiz bang uh you know laser shooting everywhere adventure we'll have that later yes there's so many great there's so many great little star trek things in in this in this movie that, that are new for the first time. I mean, it's like this is where the upgraded Klingons, were, you know, began. And, and uh, you know, we get, we get Spock with long hair and, and, and McCoy with a disco beard. It's, um, it, it's fantastic. Um, you know, obviously, all, all of the classic Star Trek characters you know, you have, you have William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, James Doohan, Nichelle Nichols, George Takei, Walter Koenig. They are joined by Stephen Collins as Decker. And the late Persis Kambata as Ilea, who's amazing in this movie. She is terrific, basically playing two characters, uh, and she's great in both. Um, the, the, there is a, there is some pacing issues to this movie. It's not it's not like it's not razor sharp in in its pacing. Um, you know, I found it weird that you don't hear the word V'ger until about an hour and twenty minutes into this movie. And it's not that that until that point that you learn that V'ger is going uh, to Earth looking for its creator. I'm like, ooh, that feels like the midpoint revelation. It feels like it should be a little earlier. Yeah, and I, I think that that, because this, this, there's the double-edged sword of it feeling like a 70s film in that way, uh, where you do kind of get that, maybe it's stretched a little, a little too far, where you get those little moments... Yet at the same time, those little moments are also some of my favorite parts of the movie. Yeah, uh, that's true. Like when Kirk first steps on the bridge of the newly redone Enterprise. And right. ev- it's just a cacophony of like everyone's working in the background. It's yeah. just super noisy. People don't even really pay attention to him that much when he comes in, considering that it's Admiral Kirk. Uh, right. Now, granted, I don't think... I don't think that they know that he was supposed to be boarding and that he is about to take over the ship. So it's, it, it plays in the, in the world, but it is so wicked seventies to just have that. And it's very, very unlike any direction that would happen on the television series. Uh, the old right. one, at least the, or the original series um, or the later movies, and, because think of the Kirk's yeah. introduction in Star Trek two. It's, it's smoke. Okay. And the door is open and there's a light behind him. And it's like, it, it's, it's, all, it's, it's, it's a superhero moment in that, you know, Kirk's entry in Star Trek two is just, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it's as seventies as this is, it's very eighties. And a little different. What, uh, the sound in this is it's funny. It, it, it kind of ties to Alien slightly, but it's done in a different di- uh, way uh, where they mm. are adding in uh, post-audio effects to kind of give the illusion of being in the room. Now, this is often a room that doesn't exist. So there's kind mm. of like false echo when they're in the warp tubes and things of that nature where they are trying to impart that that kind of lived-in feel a little bit more as well. 
uh, which really goes with, you know, the directing style very well. Rob, there was something else in this movie that I, I thought of you instantly. This movie is replete, <laughs> replete with split diopter shots. Wow. I am going to just declare Star Trek the motion picture and my king, Robert White, <laughs> yes. as emperor of the split diopter shot. Yes! This movie... It has not... I stopped counting. It's definitely well oh. into the double digits. Oh, Additionally, yeah. the, this is the only time that I've seen split diopter coverage between three characters talking. Split diopter coverage, Chris. I was in hog heaven. Oh, it is It is fantastic. No, th- anybody who says that Star Trek, the motion picture, is one of the lesser Star Trek films uh, is... I, I just... I think that it is... That's fundamentally wrong. It is very different than some of the movies that would follow. It, but it is, I think, unique and beautiful. And uh, it's it's I, there's there's a new uh, 4K version of the, of Robert Wise's director's edition, which I have not watched yet. For this, I wanted to revisit it in in its original theatrical cut. But I'm going to I'm going to watch on uh, soon because apparently everything I hear about it is is dynamite. Uh, and that you know it, it does uh, improve some of the pacing and and just some of the visual effects that they've they've redone in 4K uh, apparently look tremendous. So it's uh, it's something to look forward to. Um, you know this movie ends with words that that I truly believe, and that is the human adventure is just beginning. And and it's so amazing to me that that in 1979 there were two films. This and Alien, that were both made possible by the success of Star Wars, but were so heavily influenced by 2001 A Space Odyssey, and yet took such fundamentally different views of the human condition. Uh, it, it, is, it is fascinating, and, and it, is a, you know, it, is, it is a rich cinematic legacy that both of these films uh, live in. Speaking of rich cinematic legacies... Um, That is a perfect segue into our third and final movie today, the 11th James Bond film, Moonraker. From Earth to the most spectacular adventure in space, Moonraker. It's out of this world. What exactly are you up to here, Drax? Moonraker 1, liftoff. Moonraker 2, liftoff. Moonraker 3, liftoff. James Bond and the treacherous Dr. Goodhead. Despite your efforts, my finely wrought dream approaches its fulfillment. In the summer of 1977, the James Bond film The Spy Who Loved Me was released to critical and commercial success. The credits of that film end with the announcement that James Bond will return in For Your Eyes Only. But also in movie theaters that summer was a little film called Star Wars, and the massive success of that picture sent even legendary Bond producer Albert R. Broccoli looking for something that could tap in to the sci-fi vein of Star Wars. At the time, they were still using titles from Ian Fleming novels, and the only remotely space-related theme was Moonraker. The novel Moonraker, published in 1955, revolves around Bond uncovering a plot by British industrialist Hugo Drax, who is intent on building the UK's first ballistic ballistic missile system and actually intends to use that rocket, codenamed Moonraker, to destroy London with a nuclear warhead. Bond discovers over the course of the story that Drax is not British, but in fact a former Nazi officer who was able to assume a new identity following the war and now intends to exact revenge against the British for the defeat of the, of the Nazi regime. Um... It is one of Ian Fleming's best Bond books. And now that Casino Royale has been done justice in the Daniel Craig era, it's probably the greatest Bond book that hasn't been properly ad- adapted into a feature film. 
Um, both Moonraker throws out that story entirely. The movie Moonraker throws out that story entirely. And they even made a second attempt with Die Another Day. The Pierce Brosnan film borrows a lot of the plot elements of, you know, very much altered, but ultimately to even less successful effect. Um, almost no plot elements are carried over to the, from, to the movie. And the Moonraker missile becomes the Moonraker space shuttle. And rather than destroying London, Hugo Drax intends to kill off all human life on Earth while breeding his own super race on an orbiting space station. Effectively, it's almost a beat-for-beat beat copy of The Spy Who Loved Me in space rather than underwater. I have the central question to ask when one watches Moonraker, and I, I need an answer, Chris. Yes. Does Moonraker make James Bond the first franchise to jump the shark by doing franchise oh. in space? Oh my god. Well, before before Leprechaun, before Friday the 13th, I mean, you know that Fast and the Furious is going to space before that's over. Um, it, it, it's... They did, Chris. They did. What? I, I missed that. Was that the last one? I missed it. F 9 they rocket a Fiero into space. So it's it's chef's kiss. Uh, uh, anyway, I just, you know, I'm a big fan of, of that. Moonraker beat uh, them all. Yes. Um, you know, it's funny because with Bond, like space has always been an element. The, the plot of Dr. No involves the, the toppling of U.S. rockets. He, Bond very nearly gets into a space capsule in You Only Live Twice, but is stopped at the last moment. So it's like this was <laughs> it was kind of heading towards that. Amy. You know, it's um, the movie stars Roger Moore as James Bond, Lois Childs as Holly Goodhead. Oh, boy. She went. She went to Vassar, Chris. She went yeah. to Vassar. So you I, you give you give Holly Goodhead some respect. That's where she learned to fight. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, I have friends who went to Vassar, uh, and 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 you know, I they they could probably fight as well as anybody. Um, wait a minute, your wife went to Vassar too. Exactly. So that's how that I explains know. everything. Holly Goodhead, a very empowering uh, feminist character, Chris. Oh my God. Um, yeah, it's uh, it also has Michael Lonsdale as Drax, and as well as Richard Keel as Jaws, and Corinne Cleary, both of whom appeared in the Humanoid. We have a kind of humanoid reunion here. I, you know, I, this movie is it's it's out there, but it's entertaining. I'll say that. I I I I, I think the opening sequence with the where Bond jumps out of the plane, I think, is an all timer. I think it is terrific. Um, I think the movie has some weird pacing, and I think the movie has you know, a, a, a plot that unfolds in a kind of odd way. Um, but it's still entertaining. Um, it's, uh, it's just weird. Yeah. There, there are some things in this movie, oddly enough, where they clearly are actually ripping things from star Wars, like directly, <laughs> which you wouldn't, you would not think, uh, like, Alien and of all Star Trek three of the movies we talked about today. It. Yeah, yeah. That this rips they don't the touch bust. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, there is a point at which James Bond switches off his targeting computer oh and has to laser the last globe full of deadly orchid toxin, which right. is going to go to the uh, onto the world and kill too many people. Uh, he has to. He has to shoot it with his laser manually because the computer. Oh my God. Isn't working. Uh, now, thankfully, uh, Dr. Goodhead does not tell him to use the force, but I think that's about where they drew the line. Uh, yeah, uh, it, it, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of questions that this movie raises for me. There, this is, you know, first of all, let me just start with this. Why does James Bond have a spy camera with the number 007 engraved on it? <laughs> like he's supposed to be a secret agent. I mean, my goodness. Um, it's kind of like the little library card. If if lost, just a drop in the mail. And drop in the mail to, to Universal Exports. Yes. Um, it, it's. 
uh, the, there's there's a scene where Bond is trapped in a centrifuge that I think is legitimately great. I think that that scene is terrific. But it's so funny that, of course, he has just been given the perfect gadget to be able to extricate himself from that situation. By the way, remember when gadgets were a thing in Bond movies? They were such a huge part of it. And in the Daniel Craig era, that's like that seems you don't even think about that anymore. Which is great because um, this well, that's movie, not a complaint. I think, shows the. Oh no, I didn't take it that way, yeah. but. In this movie, almost every Bond win, almost yeah. every single one, is just a gadget he was given. It really, in that way, is the anti-Star Wars. Uh, because yeah. there's there's nothing that happens inside of James Bond. He's rarely, like, it's rarely his intelligence or tracking clues down. Uh, it's usually just, you know, a dart well, watch or something like that. There's a whole section of the movie that's set in Rio. And it's it's really they got they got like uh, you know they went and shot the the carnival down in Rio and like all great James Bond movies like all James Bond movies it has great um, you know practical location photography that is one thing the James Bond series always had and and continues to have they shoot around the world uh, honestly if I could if I could work for one big movie or TV franchise for the rest of my life it would be James Bond just because the travel would be amazing. Like it, it, it's, but there's a whole sequence in Rio, wh which means nothing. Like it doesn't tell, he doesn't learn anything. It doesn't, there's no purpose to it. The clue that gives him to Drax's base that is found in Venice. They just don't, they don't, they don't decode it till later. And it's like, oh, you, you went to Rio for no reason. Yeah. And in Venice, I think, I think in that little lair <sighs> where James Bond has to discover things, that is where uh, you also get another little nod. Because I believe that's where the keypad is that James Bond enters into. The keypad, yeah. The, the music from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The, the, the tones. Yes, the, yeah. the key code makes the sound, as all secret key code entrances do. It makes a sound like a telephone. <laughs> but... Do, 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 do. Um, and I'm out key say, there, I know. You know, <laughs> it's, it's the, the Venice sequence is when this movie, which up till this point is not that, you know, kind of, before that isn't really that far off. You know, it's 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 fairly standard of a Bond film. It's the Venice sequence where this movie loses its friggin' mind. Uh, it, it, the, the tricked out gondola that turns into <laughs> a hovercraft, originally supposed to be a motorcycle chase through Venice, but they, they couldn't, they, they did the gondola thing instead. And the gondola going through St. Mark's Square is the most absurd thing in this movie, and even more than the space stuff later. It's, it is bonkers. Uh, I mean, this is a movie where you have a pigeon doing a double take. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Um, it's amazing that this is the same series as From Russia With Love and Casino Royale. Uh, but honestly, it's that flexibility is why Bond has endured for 60 years. Like, it's it's that ability to sort of reinvent itself at various points. But uh, you mentioned the lab in Venice. Rob, here's the question. Why are they testing this deadly gas in urban Venice? Like, I get that the glass was made there, but, like, why not test it somewhere out in the middle of nowhere? Heck, you have a base in the middle of, like, the, the, the Amazon jungle. Do it there. So if there's an accident, you don't... Kill all of, I mean, I guess they're going to kill all life on Earth anyway, but if there was a, a big nerve gas accident in Venice, it would probably attract attention. <sighs> well, I, uh, I have no idea, Chris. There's some logic questions that have always bothered me. Yeah, I, I have no idea. How was the lab completely removed and replaced with like a centuries old room when Bond goes there to find oh, it God. later? Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's. Uh, uh, God, uh, it, here the, there are logic questions of this movie that have bothered me for decades, uh, including the like Drax's plan. So Drax has built a space station. Well, first of all, how did they build that space station? Did they use the shuttles? If they're reusable, why did they need to steal one back from the British to replace the faulty one? If they hadn't done that, nobody would have started investigating, and the plan would have worked. <laughs> uh, and how long did Drax intend to stay up on the space station? A couple of years? A couple of decades? A generation? He talks about their offspring returning. I need to understand the logistics of this plan. I don't think you're going to get an answer there, Chris. I, Much I, like I, V'ger asking to meet the creator... <laughs> 
you are going to be disappointed, my friend. And there's no merging with the screenwriter. So it's just Uh, tough luck, man. It's, um, I mean, this, this movie is the return of Jaws from the previous film, Spy Who Loved Me, Richard Keel, uh, who was incredible in The Spy Who Loved Me. And I'll just say it, Jaws is a buffoon in this movie. He is, although interestingly enough, now, one could look at, what, uh, On Her Majesty's Secret Service and say that there's a bit of a character arc for Bond there. Yes. Outside of that film, uh, one could say that Bond is, is very episodic in that he starts... And ends the movie mostly the same way until later on. Until you get to the Daniel uh, Craig era, sure. Yeah. So I I will say that at least until the Daniel Craig era, that Jaws's character arc in this movie is the biggest, most sweeping character arc in any Bond film until until our era, because uh, Jaws starts out as a villain, a henchman uh. for Drax, who obviously hates uh, Bond and wants to kill him at all sure, times. Sure, he's you know. Got the better of him in The Spy Who Loved Me. But by the end of this film, he has been transformed by love. He has fallen in love. And he saves not only James Bond, but the entire world That's would have true. gone... Like, the entire world would have been wiped out if Jaws had not helped free James Bond's, uh, you know, Moonraker or shuttle uh, so that he could then shoot down the globes of... Deadly orchid toxin. Uh, apparently, the the jaws jaws turned good because kids in the seventies wrote letters to the producers asking for him to turn good. That was you know. So this is a case of you know fan reaction prompting a change well before the internet era. Um, this is you know this certainly predates the you know the kerfuffle with uh, with the last Jedi and 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 the subsequent rise of Skywalker. Um, you know, uh, movie. Uh, you know, this this is this is this is a precursor to that. Jaws had to be a good guy because the kids wanted it. And really, you can't. Uh, this is so illustrative of how this is almost the anti-Star Wars hero's journey <laughs> because <laughs> your your hero does not change one whit, but one of the villains actually does. Uh, this is very unlike uh, you know the original Star Wars film. Uh, but this is a movie that ends with a laser space battle, uh, you know, and, and, and you know, in some ways is the most Star Wars thing that we're going to see out of, uh, out of the three movies today. You know, that, that, again, all of them, you know, it's a wonder, would they have just made For Your Eyes Only next? And how would that have gone? How would that have been different? Um, you know, it's, it's, this is, the Star Wars influence is very heavy here, um, you know, right to, to laser battles in space. It's true, although that laser battle in space is mostly in long shot form where you just see uh, men kind of floating very, very slowly and lasers shooting out of their their laser rifles. But there's no like editing or cutting. There's nothing like the dogfight. Well, it's interesting because the way they did the special effects for this movie, they, they didn't have the computer controlled systems that were that basically had been invented for Star Wars. Um, so all the special effects were done in camera. So they'd shoot one element, they'd wind back the film, and then shoot the next. So no element could cross one another, or else it would it would give the game away. So like when the Moonraker shuttle is flying in space, the stars fade out just before the shuttle passes in front and then fade back in. So the the, the most complex shot is that long shot of the, the laser battle. Um, it involved 48 passes of the film, which meant the film had to run through the camera 96 times. And in and of itself, that is an incredible accomplishment because if, if anything had gone, my God, if, if, if there was a scratch on the film, you know, on the, on the 47th pass, all of that work would have been for nothing. Little known fact, uh, in between each pass of that film, they did a line of Coke. And I am just, uh, <laughs> I'm surprised they lived, Chris. <laughs> Um, it is, well, you know, it was the 70s, so, uh, you know, it's, um, uh, Moonraker costs more than the first six James Bond movies combined. 
And it was a huge hit. That's the thing. Moonraker, for a long time, was the highest grossing Bond film to date. And, you know, it was the it was sort of the one-two punch of Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker that really solidified Roger Moore as James Bond. You know, before that, you know, he, he had done, you know, Live and Let Die did, did pretty well. Moon, The Man with the Golden Gun, less so. But there was a very tenuous period. It was it was these two movies that really, you know, kind of solidified Roger Moore is James Bond, you know, as opposed to Roger Moore is a guy who replaced Sean Connery. That that took a couple movies to happen. Now we don't think about it because we just you know Roger Moore, um, you know. I mean, it's Moonraker. It, you know, I could put on any James Bond movie. And I'm I'm okay, you know. Uh, you, you know, if, you, if if there's a James Bond movie available on streaming, I'm good. And Moonraker is one of those, even though it is it is, you know, a lesser entry uh, in the Bond canon. But it's interesting because so many of the the '70s Bond movies drew from cinematic trends of the moment. Live and Let Die is the black exploitation Bond. The Man with the Golden Gun is is the uh, is the Kung Fu Bond, and this is the Star Wars Bond. Um, which I think brings us to the end of today's episode. Uh, I hope we, as always, we hope you enjoyed listening and that you'll come back next week when we discuss two early attempts by the eventual owner of the Star Wars franchise, the Walt Disney Company, to enter the realm of science fiction films. That's right. We're going to be talking about The Black Hole and Tron. So thank you yes. for listening. Oh, I'm excited for that. It's, I'm, I'm, we might watch, uh, my wife and I might watch The Black Hole tonight because she has wanted to watch uh, that movie for a while and, and uh, we've been holding off and now is the time. So um, thank you so much for listening. We are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. And if you've enjoyed our show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter and Instagram at GetMeAnotherPod. And we hope to see you next week as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says... Get me another.